get there, let me introduce myself again. I'm Hunter. I'm the executive pastor at Bent Tree here in Loveland, one of Calvary's sister churches. We share a lot in common. And you may be wondering, what does an executive pastor actually do? And I've been wondering that myself. But uh, my job is actually to oversee the organization of our, our church by directing the staff and leaders in achieving our mission and vision. And uh, my passion is to encourage and empower the people of God to become all they've, that he's created them to be in the church body. And let me just say this, that I've never felt completely qualified in any role that I've had in ministry, not once. Um, but I have felt called. And I believe that it's crucial that we focus on raising up the next generation of disciple makers, of church leaders, and preachers who will work to make more and more disciples of Jesus that will carry on the faith for long after we're gone. And this is why I love James. James, the younger brother of Jesus, was an average, blue-collar kind of guy. He's the son of Joseph, a carpenter, and Mary, mother of Jesus. He wasn't wealthy, not highly educated, but God called him to share his faith in Christ Jesus, his own brother, with us. And James gives us a clear understanding of what faith in action looks like, of how our faith works, and also to warn us that faith without action is not real faith at all. And while the Apostle Paul gives us an understanding of how the gift of faith was made possible by the blood of Jesus, the book of James gives us some clear measures that we can use to know if our faith is the real deal. So let's learn a little bit more about what James is saying in this letter. Would you read along with me? James 2, 1 through 7. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in your glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit in a good place, and yet here you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So let's pray to get started. Pray with me. Father God. We know that you reveal yourself in every line of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And I ask that you do that now as we dive into this passage. God, I pray that my words would just be your words, God, that you would, I would just rest in your shadow, God. That you would work in the lives of each person listening by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that by going deep into scripture, you would make us more like Jesus to be able to practice true faith in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start with a question, a simple question. Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever felt left out? Have you ever had a case of FOMO, which is the fear of missing out? And I'm not just talking about uh, if you were the kid that got picked last in dodgeball in school. You were. I'm on that team, too. I'm talking about right now. When have you felt like you don't fit in recently? And maybe ask yourself the opposite question, which cuts a little bit deeper. How have you made others feel left out? 
And let's be even more direct. Have you ever avoided someone else in the church because of how you perceive them to be? Or have you ever ignored someone who was in your way just to get to the people you really wanted to see? Well, I'm pretty sure we've all felt left out. I know I have. And no matter how good we look or how cool we try to act, no one is immune from the feeling of being left out. Perhaps for you, this feeling is with your own family, or perhaps it's with the church family. Perhaps you're an outcast to the people who should be closest to you. Well, that's exactly what chapter 2 in James is talking about, the sin of partiality or favoritism, or as I like to say, the sin of special treatment. That's what I'm going to try to help us do this morning, to stand against the sin of special treatment. In verses 1 through 4, we learn how we're not to become what verse 4 calls judges with evil thoughts, meaning that when it comes to putting our faith into action, we shouldn't be partial to others based on the superficial. But for today's message, we're going to focus in on verses 5 through 7, where James is pointing out one of the biggest issues that still divides Christ followers today, and that is the issue of wealth. We see this same message in Leviticus 19.15, which says, Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. And also in Proverbs 28.21, which says, It's not good to show partiality. Now everyone knows that how much money we have or appear to have is a dividing line in our society. It's how our fallen world operates. And this was apparently true in James' time, too. And this issue of wealth was present from the start as the baggage of a sinful people was brought in to the 12 tribes of the early church. And it's still a huge stumbling block for the people of God today, right? So let's go through each line. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture and let it lead us to deeper understanding. So starting with verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, this is important. James is talking to brothers and sisters in the faith. He's got some church family business to deal with. And we see this addressed throughout the book. But here he's continuing from verse 4 by saying, listen. As if we didn't get the point before, he's saying, let me make this crystal clear for you. When, and whenever we find the word in scripture, what is it asking us to do? What, whenever we find the word listen in scripture, what is it asking us to do? That's right. Listen. Pretty easy answer. He has given a specific example of preferential treatment in the church, and now he's going to tell us why it's sinful, why it goes against God's will for Christ followers. So earlier in the chapter, we learned that the people in the synagogue were literally giving the rich and well-dressed the best seats in the house. And this is kind of similar to today's VIP culture, right? Front row, first class, courtside seats. The world's pretty good at upselling us, isn't it? And could you imagine if we did this here in church? These seats up close, close to me, we're going to have to charge for you. But we probably actually have to charge for the back row. <laughs> no offense, y'all, no offense. Um, it'd be pretty silly. But as James is addressing the fellow believers of his time, he's also speaking to Christ's followers today. And boy, have we taken the sin and ran with it. So continuing with verse 5. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? 
And James asked this rhetorical question to remind us of who we are, of who the body of Christ is. The body of Christ, the capital C, worldwide church, is set apart from the world. 1 Peter 2.9, the Apostle Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Furthermore, we learn in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel that God puts the poor and wealthy on equal footing. 1 Samuel 2.8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. Now James doesn't mince words when he talks about the rich, does he? In fact, he brings up the issue throughout the book. Earlier in James 1, 9 through 11, he says this. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Ouch. This got me thinking and maybe it'll get you thinking, aren't Are we living like the rich person that James is referring to? Am I living like the rich person James is talking about? And this leads us to our first point. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. What the world strikes down, God lifts up. What the world strikes down, God lifts up. In the New Testament, both James and Peter quote Proverbs 3.34 when they say, He mocks those who mock, but gives grace to the humble. And here we see this dichotomy between the kingdom of God and the world in which we live in. The world's economy is all about getting ahead, climbing the corporate ladder, reaching the top of financial success and security, no matter what we have to do to get there or who we have to take down along the way. And this is simply not the case in what we can call God's economy of mercy. In our world, the rich and famous are treated like VIPs. We call them celebrities, right? Well, what are we really doing? We're making little idols for ourselves, aren't we? For example, have you ever shared stories about getting to meet a wealthy or famous person or rubbing elbows with the rich and famous? Uh, Some even use name dropping to try to show how important they are and it's some sort of goal to meet as many famous people as you can. Um, And when you get around a really wealthy or a famous person, don't you kind of feel like you're kind of breathing in a rarefied air? I got to admit, I've done this. I've gotten super nervous even around just some minor celebrities and this is a lame example, but this one time I got to meet in person. Wait for it. You waiting for it? Mickey Mouse. I got to meet Mickey Mouse. It was super cool. Gave, gave me a hug, signed my autograph book. But really, really, people actually do this to tell us about the important VIPs that only the very few get to know. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? My friend uh, Wade Williams calls this exaltation by association. Exaltation by association. When we gush over someone's wealth or status or appearance or possessions, you name it, 
we are putting them on a pedestal of what we think is praiseworthy. We can somehow feel highly regarded in ourselves when we can say that we've gotten to know someone that important. And I've even heard people in the church do this. Well, not this church, but I've heard people in the church do this with well-known preachers, with biblical scholars and popular worship leaders they've gotten to meet. The special treatment can happen in the church, too. Now, is having nice things or being well-liked or being good at preaching a sin? No. Neither is looking up to someone or learning from someone's wisdom. In fact, discipleship is all about learning from a spiritual parent, learning from their wisdom to help us grow in our own spiritual maturity. What it's really about is the condition of our hearts, right? This longing to exalt others and somehow become exalted in ourselves because of wealth or status or talent, knowledge, title, you name it, it can quickly become idolatry in our hearts. And when we begin to give anyone the special treatment James is talking about here, we start to exalt and we can regard them above our Heavenly Father. And soon idolatry can take over our identity. Remember, anything or anyone we put at a level of importance above our Heavenly Father is idolatry. Let me repeat that. Idolatry is anything or anyone we put at a level of importance above our Heavenly Father. It's a sin. So back into our focus passage from James, chapter 2, verse 6. Yet you have dishonored the poor. Uh Uh-oh. He's calling us out here. This verse refers back to verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2 where the special treatment is given in the church to the wealthy, well-dressed people. And here the Greek word for dishonored means to disgrace, insult, and despise. And maybe you visited this kind of church, the suit and tie church or the odor-free church. The kind of place where you wouldn't feel welcome wearing a Broncos jersey or some jean shorts. We call them jorts. Or uh, sandals with socks, anybody? Sandals with socks? If you're wearing that right now, no offense, no offense. I think that's the Colorado look anyway, and you're totally welcome here. But beyond wealth and fancy clothes, the heart of this passage is the same that's found throughout the rest of the book of James, which is our next point. Our faith is proven by how we treat each other. Our faith is proven by how we treat each other each other. And Jesus gives this command to his disciples in John 13, verse 34 and 35. Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Loving one another is a mark of a true disciple. And when it comes to loving our enemies, Jesus makes this point clear to us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, What reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So what does this look like today? 
if Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, how can we possibly do that if we don't even love the people in the church that may be a little bit different from us? Today, our society is more divided than ever. We like to join together in little groups with only the people that are just like us. I think of the old adage, us four and no more. Some even try to put a positive spin on it, saying, I'll only hang out with the kind of people that will build me up. And you can see this in the church, when a small group of people that share every little thing in common decides to go rogue and split from the rest of the church. Or when a person decides to leave the church because their friends started going to another church and you just got to stay with your friend group, right? Church, we've got to stop doing this. We were meant to fit together with people that are different from us, from different backgrounds, from different personalities, with different stories and personalities from different tax brackets. Now, don't get me wrong. If the church is not preaching the full truth and grace of the Bible and does not believe and preach the sacrifice of Jesus, God's only Son, whose blood was shed on the cross to atone for our sins, you should leave that church. You should run from that church. Run from false teaching. And good news, you're in a good church that preaches that. Now, in our society, we have segmented ourselves so much so that there is an infinite number of identity groups that you can be a part of. The world wants to celebrate and even elevate every little thing that makes us different and unique. But in doing so, we forget who made us in the first place. And soon we can even begin to cling to and exalt these individual identity groups. Listen, the body of Christ is the most diverse group of people on earth. Followers of Christ come in all colors. They live in every part of the world. They speak different languages. They come from different cultures. They have different abilities and likes, and interests, and wealth. But what unites us all is the Holy Spirit that lives in the heart of every believer. True Christ followers have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. And although those that belong to the body of Christ, along with those that belong to the body of Christ, it's important to remember our next point here. Everyone you meet is an image bearer of the Creator. Everyone you meet is an image bearer of the creator. We were made in his image. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. There's not a person in the church or outside the church that God did not make in his image. From the beggar on the street to the multi-billionaire, each one created in the image of the creator. So back to James chapter 2, verse 6. James says, don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So who are the rich that James is referring to? Well, in that culture, the rich were often the rulers and authorities, and many would exhibit their power over people with acts of oppression. Sounds kind of like today, right? Not only do we have celebrities, but we have an elite class of powerful billionaires and wealthy politicians who don't always agree with the values and morals of the Christian faith found in Scripture. And on a related note, when it comes to being oppressed and persecuted, we've been incredibly blessed, haven't we? We're much better off than our brothers and sisters um, in other parts of the world who are right now, today, being put to death for their faith in Christ. And although we haven't faced tremendous persecution 
here in the U.S., we're living in unprecedented times in our nation, aren't we? There could be a day very soon where the Christian church in America loses its freedoms and protections from the government. And it's not a huge stretch to the imagination where uh, a day where gatherings like this one, where the true gospel is taught and preached, could lead to criminal prosecution. Now, this is not to alarm you, but maybe to alarm you. But it's not to worry you. Remember what Jesus tells us, John 15, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The body of Christ should expect persecution if it's truly living as the body of Christ. The gospel message is inherently offensive. And as Christ followers, we should know why it's offensive and why we should expect persecution. It's offensive because we're the offenders, you and I. The gospel calls out our sin. It calls out our disobedience and our rebellion. The truth is that there is nothing you can do in your own effort to make yourself right in God's sight. You can't be good enough can't be smart enough, can't be rich enough, or poor enough for that matter, to earn salvation or to get to heaven. The gospel can also be seen as offensive because it tells us that a price must be paid for our sin. And what's the price? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. The price of my sin, my disobedience, my preferential treatment of others required a sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice, the price for sin, is death and eternal separation from God and hell. But the good news of the gospel is that God made a way for us to be reconciled with him through the atoning work of his only son, Jesus, on the cross, his death and resurrection. Amen? Amen. And the apostle Peter tells us that the sacrifice was like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is offensive to our sin, yes. But as God gives us the faith to believe in Christ crucified, and as we put our faith in Jesus, all our sins, past, present, and future, are washed away, and we are reconciled to God. Praise God. Okay. Let's get back to James 2, verse 6. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So the Greek word for blaspheme here means to vilify. And the Greek word for good here is kelon, which means beautiful, chiefly good, valuable, and virtuous. So what is this good name, this beautiful, valuable, and virtuous name that James is referring to? Well, the good name that defines a follower of Christ is the name of Jesus Christ himself. And here is why taking on the name of Christ is so important. Christ Jesus has the real power. Christ Jesus has the real power. Amen. Amen. I believe you all talked about this last week. In Philippians 2, 10 through 11, the Apostle Paul writes, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, 
who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. And let's read this next verse together. Let's say it like we believe it. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You want to be impressed? Look to Jesus. You want to know perfect humility? Look to Jesus. You want to see true nobility and perfect beauty? Look to Jesus. You want to be able to name drop the name that is above all names? Tell people about Jesus. Tell them who Jesus is to you. If you put your faith in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the King of Kings. As the book of Galatians says, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Jesus has the real power, amen? And this is the name invoked over the people of God, as Isaiah 43, 7 says, Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. The same God that formed us and made us in his image created us for his glory. And we aren't to glorify the rich, the poor, or any other person, place, or thing. We are made to bring glory to God alone. The Apostle Paul also reminds us of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. And listen for how it connects directly with what James is telling us. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in His presence. It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So here in verse 31, the Apostle Paul is quoting the prophet Jeremiah. And I love the message paraphrase of this verse, which says, If you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Or in the hunter paraphrase, stop tooting your own horn. And with that, we come to our final point for today. We don't strike others down, we point them to Jesus. We don't strike others down, we point them to Jesus. So what is James pointing to? And what are we supposed to do with this message? Well, it's found throughout the book of James, where he shows us what real faith looks like. In James 2.26, he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so... Also, faith without works is dead. So what are the works or actions that we should do in response to the sin of special treatment? Well, to summarize what we've looked at this morning, we should first remember everyone we meet is an image bearer of God. Christian or not, we don't look down on others. Second, we should glorify Christ alone, recognizing his unmatched power. Don't make idols out of people, money, or possessions. And finally, we should love those that are different from us. In the church, outside the church, the poor, the rich, and anyone in between. 
We do this by humbling ourselves as we serve others. As Philippians 2 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. We are to serve others the way Jesus serves us, with mercy and grace and humility. And this is what God is calling us to do in response to his great love for us, to love those that are different from us. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that we would practice our faith by doing what your word says here in James. I pray that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, our church body as well, by honoring each other and by caring for the widow and the orphan. Help us not give in to the temptation of elevating anyone or anything above you in our hearts. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit to convict us of the sin of special treatment. Show us where we're doing this and help us to repent, to turn away from it. And to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, perfecter of our faith. God, we want to bring you glory. Bring glory to your name, the name above all names. Help us to lead others to Jesus by telling them the gospel and by showing them true works of faith. It's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.